science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker and Liz Neely. And this week we're presenting stories about feeling like outsiders. Oh, which is one near and dear to my heart. This is definitely something I grew up feeling. <laughs> oh, how's how's so? Well, you I mean like a simple question like where are you from makes me freeze, right? Like my shoulders come up and I kind of stumble every time and then I do the whole like, oh, you know, I'm from everywhere. I moved every 2 years my whole life. Um but yeah, like m growing up in the Air Force, like I did, it meant I never stayed in one school for very long. I never had like a set group of friends. I didn't have a hometown. Wow. Um, yeah, I, f I feel like the perpetual outsider. I see. So it's hard to imagine li the Liz Neely as an <laughs> outsider. <laughs> I feel like the Liz Neely is a construct. No, what I mean, like, I felt it too, like, after I left science, it was like, well, I'm not a journalist, but I'm not a scientist, I, you know. And then I joined Story Collider, and I was like, well, I'm not a performer, and I'm not a New Yorker. I'm surrounded by all these super cool people. <laughs> I carry baggage, Erin. I carry baggage. We all do. I, we see this a lot at Story Collider. We see folks who are, you know, really into art and also science, and maybe they feel like an outsider in one or the other. But uh, at Story Collider, everybody is an insider. It's <laughs> the great thing about it. No, I mean, like, but it is really interesting, right? Like, one of the great superpowers being an outsider gives you is, like, you actually notice stuff. You see things that insiders take for granted. So I... I think there's something interesting there, too. That's true. Maybe we'll find out more about that today in our stories. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> our first story is from our own Rehane Maktoufi. It was recorded in April 2019 at Hairpins Art Center in Chicago. The theme that night was Unpredictably Predictable. My name is Rehane. It means basil in Persian. I am from Iran, Tehran, and I came here three years ago to get married to my husband and to do a PhD in science communication, which basically means I see how scientists get people to be more interested in science and be more curious and ask more questions. And for that, I get to do my research at a planetarium, which is really fun uh, because growing up, I was a huge astronomy enthusiast, but I didn't get to be around astronomy in space because I studied physiotherapy and then I started working in hospitals. So I was really far away from space. So now it's great because I get to learn about the coolest thing in space. Like there are gigantic stars that have whole hearts, cores made of diamond or that there might be a ninth planet in our solar system, and I am not talking about Pluto. This is my favorite thing. And my name fits really well in that geeky environment, because I usually tell people my name is Rehane. Ray, like Ray from Star Wars. And then Han, like Han from Star Wars. <laughs> and then Eh. Or I can shorten it and say my name is Ray, like the cosmic Ray, or X-rays. 
But um, this specific day, around a year ago, my name felt like an alien. It, it was a really nice day. It was a great day. The weather was nice. I had dinner with my husband. And he goes off to his pottery class, and I'm on my way back to home. And I was just singing songs, and I was just happy. Everything felt nice. And um, instead of uh, crossing the street towards the train where the traffic light was, I decided to walk a little lower down. So I go down. I stand by the street. I look to my right, and then I look to my left. And on the left, I see this car standing, waiting to turn left, and another car standing right behind it. And I thought, they're far away enough, I can cross. So I step in the street, and suddenly everything goes dark. But not dark like in movies when everything goes dark and then someone wakes up in a hospital and says, oh, I can't remember anything, what happened, where am I, what happened? It was dark, but I was there. I was hearing everything and I was feeling everything so vividly. I felt weightless and I felt like I was lifted from the ground. And I could hear everything so loud. Like breathing on a microphone, I could hear myself breathe. And I started hearing something hitting something else. And then those really short moments that felt like forever were suddenly over. And I open my eyes, and I'm in the street next to this car. And it dawns on me that I got hit by a car. And those noises that I was hearing was me hitting that car. And I suddenly just start crying and screaming loud and asking for help and I feel this terrible pain in my legs and in my knees and as a physiotherapist you know that knees are shitty <laughs> knees, <laughs> when they break they don't heal well they take forever and they're just like the most annoying thing and I love my knees I like running or walking or whatever it is you do with your knees I so I just, I just cry and I'm screaming and then I see this woman running towards me and she's asking me if I'm doing okay. She takes her phone and starts calling an ambulance and I'm like, fuck, ambulances and healthcare, expensive, that's not good. And I start freaking out and I'm just like, ma'am, please don't call an ambulance, please, please just don't call an ambulance. And for good reasons, she did call an ambulance. Um, and then I see from distance this driver is walking towards me and he looks horrified. He is so scared and I start feeling so guilty. I'm like, what have you done? Look at this poor guy. Look at what you've done to him. So I just start feeling so guilty and I keep crying and he's like coming towards me and I decide to crawl on the ground towards him while I'm crying. And I hold his shoes with like my tears and my snot just like falling on his shoes and I'm saying, I'm so sorry, I'm just, I'm so sorry, as if he wasn't traumatized enough, just like have that memory. Uh, so I'm apologizing, I, I can't remember what he did next, but uh, I start hearing the sirens. So the police arrives and the police is talking to the driver and the paramedics 
and they come towards me and they start putting this neck thing around my neck to make sure I don't move. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, my knees. If I stand up and walk magically, I will be fine if I can just prove myself that I'm fine. So I'm like, oh, I don't need the stretcher. I could, I could walk. And they're like, ma'am, I don't think you can. Just like sit. Let's, 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 let, let us handle this. I'm like, no, no, I'll be fine. And I just like try to stand up and there's this terrible pain in my knees. So I'm like, oh, okay, no, I'll let you help me. So they put me on the stretcher and we're in the ambulance. And at this point, my husband also arrives and he's outside talking to the police. So the paramedics, they have the scissor and they're starting to slowly, slowly cut my beautiful gray leggings with this amazing floral patterns on it. And I'm just like, can I not just take it off, please? But no, they have to cut the legging. And while he's cutting it, the paramedic says, considering what you did to the car, you look pretty good. <laughs> so apparently I flew over the car, I break the windshield and I fall down and I, think to myself, I'm like, you know what? You're good. You're alive. You're fine. You're good. So we drive to the hospital, and we're in this room, and the police keeps coming in and out and in and out, and the doctors tell them, hey, can you just like wait outside until we're done? Um, so the doctors are trying to figure out what else is wrong with me except for the mild concussion that I have that is giving me a headache and this dizziness and everything. Uh, and I am still in denial. I'm trying to like walk around and be like, see, I can walk and perfectly and everything, but I was in pain. Um, so a few x-rays later, uh, it turns out that my knee is broken. And I just, I'm again feeling terrible. And then I again start crying and thinking of everything that I have to go through. But then again, I think to myself, you know what? That was the worth of it. That was the worst, right? You're, you're fine now. It's just a knee. So now the, doc, the police can come in. And before that, my husband says, hey, I got to tell you something uh, about something that happened while I was talking to the police. So the police asked me, my husband, uh, what's her name? It's Rehane Maktoufi. What kind of a name is that? Excuse me? What kind of a name is that? Where is she from? She's from Iran, Tehran. Does she have any paperwork? Does she have ID? Uh, yes, she has federal ID. Do you, do you need me to go find them, bring them to you? And at this point, the police lost interest. So I'm confused. Why this police is asking all of these questions from my husband? And then again, another wave of guilt starts falling over me. Because let me tell you. My husband is a Jewish boy raised in Alabama, so he had his fair share of interesting comments and questions and behavior. And I felt like I was like, oh, you know what? Let me sprinkle a little bit of brown Muslim from Iran on top of the Jewish boy from Alabama, because that's going to work great. So I start crying again, feeling guilty of, he has to go through all of this because of me, shit. So the police comes in and suddenly this memory that I have from the room is just 
the room is so much bigger and my bed is so much smaller and really long. At the end of the bed, this police is standing and next to him, my husband, and I'm just like tiny on this bed and he's asking me questions about my accident and I have a really vague memory of it so I'm just like trying to tell him what happened and he's writing things down and it just feels like he's a doctor writing things down waiting to tell me I'm dying like that's how it felt so he, he keeps writing things and then he's done and then he tears this piece of paper and he gives it to me and he says so here's your ticket because you jaywalked <laughs> And this is the court date and time, and you will be attending the court. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> court? A ticket? I am thinking that I'm an immigrant. At that point, I have been waiting for my green card to come for around three years. For no good reason. Something that should have taken me six months. So I'm thinking, oh great, on top of all this resume that they're looking at it to see if they want to give me a green card or not, there's going to be a ticket and a court case and everything and crime and prison and just like I'm thinking more and more. And I'm just crying and I say, what does that mean? Why do I have to court? Is this going to affect my immigration? Is this, am I going to be deported? And I'm just crying. And he's like, no, 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 this is, this is like a petty crime. And he looks at my, at my husband and he says, uh, do they have petty crimes in Iraq? And my husband furiously looks at him and he says, Iran, she's from Iran. Yeah, yeah, do they have petty crimes in Iran? And I'm confused and I'm just, I keep crying and it's, that's over. So later, we look at the ticket. The only witness on the ticket is the driver who hit me. And we later also find out that the driver never got a ticket or anything. So after that, I thought, you know what? Maybe that police was doing his job. Maybe he gives a ticket to whoever jaywalks. You know, maybe, what do I know? So the day of the court comes and we're sitting outside this courtroom and I'm so nervous. And suddenly I look around me and in this really, really white county that we are, I just realized that everyone around me is black and brown, Hispanic, and just not white. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe we do commit more crimes. <laughs> and then I say, but I didn't commit a crime that others don't. Everyone fucking jaywalks. I got the ticket. I got the ticket. That police was not doing his job. That day, the, the driver who hit me didn't show up to the court, so my case got dismissed, thank God. We went home, and I told my husband, I want to file a police report. We did. <laughs> Surprise. No one ever got back to us. Nothing ever happened. This was a very hard year. I spent so much time going through therapy. You know, I had to immobilize my knee. I had to go through hours and long days of physiotherapy. I couldn't run or do a lot of things that I loved, like swordsmanship, for a long time. And even a year-ish later, now 
I, I still can't run for long. I can't properly jump. I have pain on and off. But that was not the worst part of that year. The worst part was how I felt about my name. This fun name, this name that I loved and I could joke about it and everything, this alien name singled me out and turned me into a target. I really, really want scientists to find this planet nine. This ninth planet that is longing to be found, that is just waiting to be found. Let me tell you about my soulmate, Planet Nine. <laughs> Some scientists think that there might be a ninth planet in our solar system, and they think that that might be true because they see that some objects in the outer edges or outer places in the solar system are moving a little weirdly. So they think maybe there's this really gigantic planet out there that is causing them to move this weird. And they call it Planet Nine. Because we don't know anything about it. We don't know how it looks, what color it is, what it's up to. It's not like Mars that is red, so we're like, oh, it's angry, like Mars, the god of war. Or Neptune, blue, like the god of oceans. Or Uranus. Uranus. <laughs> no, it's just Planet Nine. And I get Planet Nine. I get it. I think Planet Nine is this rebellious planet. And she loves her son and her other sibling planets, but someday she was like, you know what? I want to adventure. I want to go out and explore. And she just leaves and goes far, far away from where her son is. And on her way, I'm sure she gets to meet the most amazing aliens and becomes friends with some great asteroids and sees some breathtaking scenes. But I also think that Planet Nine might feel misunderstood and very lonely. Maybe she has a family, maybe she has a name. I don't know, maybe her name is Planet De Hone. And maybe all she wants is to be found and to be seen, to be understood and to be loved. Thank you. That was Rehane Maktoufi. Ray is one of our producers and the host of our Chicago show. She's also a PhD candidate in media technology and society at Northwestern University. Her big interest is science communication, curiosity, and public engagement with scientists, which is good because she's a visiting researcher at the Adler Planetarium where she studies a lot of this. Before she started her PhD, Ray was a health communications facilitator and campaign manager in Tehran, Iran. She also is a producer of comics and video about art and science. In her free time, she says she enjoys staring at the wall and making up stories in her head <laughs> or playing bad ukulele and scaring off the birds. But I also think my favorite thing about Ray, she's a swordswoman. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell from this bio, Ray is a multifaceted individual. Multi-talented. That's right. <laughs> We're really happy to have her on our team. 
And, she's uh, scary for all the reasons she doesn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and how unintentionally ironic that we have on our Outsiders episode, one of our own producers today. <laughs> <laughs> we did that, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. And uh, speaking of Outsiders and Insiders, you will have an opportunity, you, our listeners, to become more of a story quieter insider over the next couple of weeks. We are about to relaunch our Patreon community to Yay. offer, yeah, very exciting, to <laughs> offer new content to all of y'all. You can find it at patreon.com slash the story collider. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it is a platform where you can sign up to donate a certain amount of money per month. Um, in our case, a minimum of $5. And in return, you can receive rewards and bonus content from the Story Collider. So we If you ever wanted to buy us a cup of coffee or a beer, think of this as your chance. Yeah. <laughs> Except this money won't be going toward coffee or beer. It will be going toward all the important things that we try to do as an organization, our shows, our workshops, uh, little aspects of accessibility that we try to include for our audiences both live and on the podcast such as our transcripts and being able to occasionally hire sign language interpreters for our shows when necessary so we really really appreciate the support uh so yes go to patreon.com slash the story collider over the next couple of weeks we are starting a big promotion on giving tuesday december 2nd if you sign up that week you will be able to receive a special bonus gift from us as well it's a good one that's right. <laughs> and of course, this is all in celebration of our upcoming 10-year anniversary this May. We are going to be celebrating 10 years of stories about science over these next few months. So get ready for it. <laughs> all right. So should we move on to our next story? I was just trying to decide if get ready for it sounded like a promise or a threat. <laughs> <laughs> or else. <laughs> Our next story today is from Danielle Lee. It was recorded in March 2019 at the Ready Room in St. Louis. The theme that night was Moment of Clarity. About less than a year after I finished my PhD studying the behavior of field mites right here in St. Louis at University of Missouri-St. Louis, I got a phone call from a colleague who had just gotten this really big grant to study African giant pouched rats. <sighs> really large rats. Cat-sized rats that have cheek pouches like hamsters that could sniff out landmines buried deep in the ground. It's an amazing innovation, using rats to detect explosives and to save lives. Now, he was looking for someone for this project who had experience and who would be willing to do this work. And when I realized the research would, like, would take me to Africa to do the study, I decided I wanted in. I had been dreaming of studying wildlife in Africa since I was a child, sitting in front of the TV mesmerized before nature shows like Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom. Now, this research was funded by the U.S. Department of Defense, and they were interested in it because, one, it was amazing that these pouch rats could do this, but there had been some hiccups to it. 
the place that trained these rats invested a lot of time. It took almost a year to train them. And only about 35% of the rats could successfully be trained. So the goal was to do some basic biology to examine their behavior and to learn more about just them because they hope to be able to scale this project and to you know, recommend some viable training and breeding protocols you know, in service of US security. I jumped at the chance. Like It was my goal to convince him I was the person he needed for this job. And I did that by really highlighting the fact that I had field research and I had experience studying the beha personality behavior of wild rodents. And I successfully did that. So he didn't even put in a job ad. I convinced him I was the person for the job. And my first arrival getting off the plane in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, I was excited as the humidity hit my face and the wind hit my face. And I stepped off the plane and I heard the loud clamoring of people at the arrival gate and I was just struck, I was doe-eyed. Now the thing I was really looking forward to in Tanzania was being able to do science in a place where I could blend in. I don't really have that opportunity here in, in, in the States. I don't really blend in in science spaces. But I didn't blend in at all. I stood out. I stood out a lot. Between my wide eyes of curiosity and my reluctance to step boldly in the queues and the bop in my step, so even simple things like how I walked, my naturally smiling faces and making eye contact with people, and carrying a camera in my hand, taking pictures every five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and traveling with Wunzungus, which means foreigner, signaled that I too was a Wunzungu, even though the term is typically used for white people. Despite my brown skin and natural hair, no one mistake me for Tanzanian. <laughs> I was Western, so Western. And I was trying to figure out how that made me feel. And I realized I felt conspicuous. And that conspicuousness made me really, really uncomfortable because I had hoped to be able to do my science and kind of move about town mostly untracked, and it just wasn't happening. I would, everywhere I went, I just, I would have everyone literally stop and stare at me, young and old, women and men alike. And I began to really just self-critique, like what was I wearing? Was, was I wearing something inappropriate? I wasn't wearing logos, and I was wearing field clothes, long pants and t-shirts, which is pretty conservative. I was dressed like the other researchers, and none of them, men or women, were getting those looks. But they were also white. And so I took a long, hard look at everyone around me, and I really started paying attention to the local women. And what I realized is that most of the local women didn't wear pants, well, at least not as an outer layer. And so they either wore you know, medium to long skirts or they wore this piece of cloth called a kanga, really bright pattern African cloth that's anywhere from two to three yards long and they wrap it around their waist. Um, so I decided to test my hypothesis. 
So my second week in the country, I decided to go to market, buy a conga. So I got this really bright orange and burgundy patent cloth. And before I stepped out of the truck into town the next time, I quickly wrapped it around my waist. It was like magic. The stairs disappeared. And I seemed to blend in and move about town and public spaces very comfortably with the other women. That was amazing. I love that. And it really made me pause and just pay attention to the feedback I was getting from people along, especially women. Now, I spent most of my time around this time mostly interacting with uh, women. The women I interacted with were primarily house girls or service girls. And because my Swahili was poor and their English was poor, a lot of this was mostly nonverbal. <laughs> So they would come into my room and pick up, and then they would often like kind of indicate that they wanted to do my laundry. And I was always kindly, you know, shake my hand and my head, no, no thank you. I mean, I grew up in a working class family. I've been washing my own clothes since I was 10 years old. I mean, never in my life would I have imagined having someone else do my laundry, especially by hand since that's how it's mostly done there. I grew up in the kind of family where everyone had to pull their own weight and nobody was picking up after you. So I said no. I didn't think what the big deal was. But after about being there a month, one and my language skills started getting a little bit better, one of the house girls finally inquired why I wouldn't let her do my laundry. I was staying in a rest house, which by those local standards was a pretty expensive one by their standards. Um, but I was so cash strapped, I couldn't spare the three to 5,000 shillings a week, that's around two or three dollars in US money, to let her do my laundry. Plus, when I thought about it, doing my own laundry wasn't the best use of my time since I was only there for a short period. And that, what seemed like a little amount of money to me, two or three US dollars, translated to a big deal to her. Like it made a big difference and I was just sitting on it. I was just sitting on that money that was pennies to me. And that was my first big eye-opening thing, is that how we spend our money when we're doing science really matters, who we spend it with. And I also realized it's okay to hire people to do service work for you. Like, that was important to me, that I could be spending my time focusing on my science, especially since I was only there for a couple of months at a time. So, you know, I've been going back and forth to the country for several, several times, so many times. Uh, this been there back and forth for about five years. But I didn't really, really start making friendships with local women until my second year there, when I'd hired Pindu Msegu. So I'd met her the year before, and I hired her as my research assistant. And she was the first woman supervisor at the pouch rat training facility, the place where they actually train the rats. So after working all day, she'd work an additional two to four hours in the afternoon for me, handling pouch rats and helping me set up behavior experiments. And she taught me about pouch rat husbandry. She helped me with my key Swahili. And we actually took a lot of time to actually get to know each other. We talked about our, our shared experiences of working in male-dominated fields. 
I was able to ask her a lot of basic questions um, because her English was so good, like where can I buy personal care items? Where can I get my hair done? What does it mean when men make those kissing noises at you on the street? It means the same thing there that it does here. <laughs> so basically, she was, she helped me out and I really appreciated her patience with me. And I once remarked that I wanted a locally made African print dress and she offered to make it. And so Pinto was important, not just you know, helping me figure out and navigate my time in Tanzania, but she actually made things happen for me personally and professionally. She was really important. So as my time was coming to a close, I was beginning to panic about getting enough data. <laughs> I had half joked with her one afternoon. I was like, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna drive around town and get on a loudspeaker and announce I'm gonna pay 5,000 shillings, about $3 US, to anyone who brings me a pouch rat. <laughs> and she laughed and she was like, wow, if you do that, you're gonna cause a riot in town. And I was like, what? She's like, no, if people heard that, they would literally run from their jobs to catch pouch rats and anything else that they think looks like a pouch rat <laughs> and bring it to you. And she exclaimed, even me, I would leave my job now for that much money. <laughs> and I laughed, but I realized she was serious. And I started, you know, I paused and I was like, wait a minute, wait, you do that much for 5000 like it means that much to you, like these $3? And I started just paying attention and I realized all the, most of the local Tanzanians I knew all had extra jobs or side hustles. I mean, Pindo was side hustling in that moment in addition to all the other extra things she was doing like dressmaking to make money. And so a lot of the expats at the Pouch Rat Training Center would often kind of jab and make jokes and tease Pendo and the other Tanzanians about always being so eager to do extra work here and extra work there, while simultaneously talking about how much they begged for money. And I didn't like that, and, I, and it bothered me. And one day Pendo confessed something to me in the middle of one of those interactions, and she said, Every day, I am chasing tender. And I knew what she meant exactly. I just started thinking, every day I'm hustling, hustling. <laughs> she was on a paper chase. And I knew that because I grew up in a cash-strapped community, in a home, surrounded by other neighbors, all of us equally devastated by Reaganomics. Everybody had a side hustle. The guy who cut grass on the weekend or washed cars. My mom sells plates. My sister does hair. Hell, I was blogging about my experiences in Tanzania at that very moment to earn extra money myself. I know side hustles. Side hustles are the language of the underpaid. And despite working all day and all weekend, almost everybody was always scrapping for more money. 
most of the Tanzanians, especially the working class Tanzanians, spent a lot of their times running errands for expats or wealthier Tanzanians or doing whatever little errands they could. So I got it. And it opened my eyes up yet again. How we spend our money and who we spend our money with while doing science matters. And whether intentionally or not, our science can really exacerbate inequalities that exist, especially when we're doing international research. Before these big revelations, I was so hyper-focused on just doing my work, you know, getting to Tanzania, trapping pouch rats, doing behavior work. I actually was hungry a lot of times, lonely. <laughs> um, and despite being surrounded by so many people, my failure to connect to people just really made it hard to get things done because I was blocked by thinking that my work, that science, was the most important thing I can get out of that trip. When I took the time to get to know people and listen to what they needed, I got more than what I needed out of that trip. When I hired people to work with me, I not only got folks I needed to help me actually get the data I needed, but what I paid them made a big difference in their lives. And what I mean by that is I literally paid people and that was the difference between being able to send their kids to school that term or not, paying off a looming debt, sending money back home to their parents to get much needed medicines. That money mattered. And in return, when I get to town, I know I have a team on the ground, because I go back year after year, ready to go, ready to get me what I need. I don't have to waste a lot of time waiting to do things. Because I was willing to engage in equitable and respectful economics, I was giving privy to things that I don't think most other you know, foreigners or Wunzungus get. I gained this friendship and trust. I was able to get home-cooked meals. I was invited to homes. I was invited to church and Bible study. I was a privileged to hear the chatter of old women talking about me getting a husband before I left that day. <laughs> but I think what I really liked the most was just being greeted around town as Dada Daniela, which means Sister Danielle. And when I return to Tanzania now, I'm no longer Wunzungu. They call me Mbongo, which translates to a Tanzanian who's been away and has now come back home. Thanks. That was Danielle and Lee. Danielle is an outreach scientist who studies animal behavior and behavioral ecology. She studies the behaviors of mice and rats in the metro St. Louis area and the natural history of African giant pouch rats, as we just heard. She was selected as a 2015 TED Fellow and was named as one of Ebony Magazine's Power 100 and a White House Champion of Change in STEM Diversity and Access. 
In 2013, she helped found the National Science and Technology News Service, a media literacy initiative to bring more science news to African-American audiences and promote science news source diversity in mainstream media. Love this story from Danielle and love the pouch rats. (laughs) It's so good. I got to see her expand these ideas further for her keynote at the SACNIS conference that we just got back from in Hawaii. And it was amazing thinking about what outsiders can do, not only in this her story themes, but also like the insights into the science and the basic biology of those pouch rats. Amazing. Yeah, I highly recommend doing a Google image search for giant pouch traps. (laughs) You'll come up with a lot of pictures of them in tiny little harnesses. And I have to say, it's probably the cutest rats have ever been. (laughs) (laughs) The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director with Bronchitis, Liz Neely. <laughs> with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, who also has bronchitis. <laughs> Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, who I hope does not have bronchitis. And the rest of our amazing team, hopefully bronchitis free. <laughs> The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Lily B., Eli Chen, and Emma Young. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Zoe Saunders, Jun Chen, and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Hairpin Arts Center and the Ready Room for hosting our shows. And to Albuterol for keeping me going. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Albuterol. (laughs) And to everyone out there who has ever felt like an outsider. Yeah. We got you. (laughs) You're one of us. Yeah, Gloria this week. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.